Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Peter. And if you're here this morning and you don't know a lot about the Bible or where it came from or how to find things, um, 2 Peter's towards the end of the book. Um, it is, uh, there's Revelation and there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John right before Revelation and 2nd Peter is right there, uh, right in between 1st uh, Peter and 1st John. And if you're saying, man, I just, I don't know a lot about the Bible, you are here on a great morning because we're going to talk about today um, where we get the Bible um, and why we as a church believe it is God's Word to us. And uh, I'm going to challenge some of uh, some of our thinking a little bit this morning, especially some of you who have been around for a little bit, um, but I think it's really important. Um, in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God is talking about, uh, Moses is writing down this creation account, and uh, God creates this world, and as he's going through it, he is declaring things as being good. This is good day one, this is good day two, and he gets to... Day seven, and he rests. There is a couple of trees in the middle of the garden, which God says to Adam and Eve, his creation. He said, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you are not to eat. Now, Adam and Eve are in the garden one day, and uh, they're roaming around the tree. I don't know why. And we're introduced in the story to a serpent who talks. Now, the Bible doesn't explain where the serpent came from or why it's talking, but the serpent is talking to Eve. Adam's there, kind of being a man, not saying anything. And uh, he begins to challenge. Yeah, I said it. I'm okay with it. Um, Eve begin, he begins to challenge God's word and this, whether they should eat from the garden. Now, nowhere else in the beginning of this story, and very little in the Old Testament, do we hear anything about the serpent. But there's one thing that's introduced to us here. That right from the beginning, there's opposition. There's opposition to God's rule and to God's kingdom. And we don't necessarily know where the opposition comes or what the serpent's problem is, but there's opposition. And as we go through the story of Scripture, we see opposition from kingdoms, from rulers, from people, uh, from all sorts of different things that are opposing this story, this people group, this this. Uh, promise that God has given, and, and we're following this opposition all the way through. Now, at the end, the end of the story tells us that this opposition is Satan, and that, uh, you know, he's one of God's created beings, and we're, we're wrestling with all this, but it's really funny to me how often in church, and in life, and in the world that we live in, that people who are followers of Jesus are surprised when life is difficult, or when there's opposition. It starts on page two, and it goes all the way through the story. In fact, Paul tells us in another place, he says, your fight, it's not even against flesh and blood. It's against spirits and powers and rulers. He's saying, your fight is even bigger than you think it is. And so in our portion of 2 Peter, and if you're visiting with us, we're going through the book of 2 Peter, we're kind of going by different little sections and talking about what it says and what it means for us and how we apply it to our lives. Peter starts this section, we're in 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to give you a little background in just a second, but he says in verse 16, for we 
did not follow cleverly devised myths. Now, what Peter's doing here is he is saying, some of you, some people out there, are accusing us of making this whole thing up. Right? That's one of the things people have said over the years. A bunch of old, geezy people got into a room somewhere, and they just made all this stuff up to control people. That's what they did. And, and Peter's just addressing that head on. No, no, we didn't. It's not where, it's not where the Bible came from. Okay? So he's dealing with this. So why is Peter writing this? Remember, uh, if you've been here, um, and just by way of reminder, if you're visiting with us, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the apostles, one of the people who walked with Jesus, learned from Jesus, saw Jesus die, raised from the dead, uh, saw Jesus after his resurrection. One of these apostles, um, he has been preaching about all that Jesus came and did, and he is, because of that, in prison. People don't like what he's preaching. The Romans don't like him saying that there's another God out there. They have him in prison. And so he says in chapter 1, verse 13, I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. I'm trying to remind you of all the things I taught you, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, since I know they're gonna, I'm going to be dead. So I'm trying to remind you. What's he trying to remind us of? He says, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Make sure you understand your faith, your belief, what you're grounded in. And he told us all these things that we're supposed to be growing in. We looked over the last two weeks, but we were reminded all the way back up in verse 3 that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life. Jesus gives us all the things we need to grow in these things. So, he's saying, first of all, I want you to grow in your faith. Second, in the book of, of 2 Peter, I want you to be sure of the things that we're teaching and where they came from. And then we're going to jump into some really interesting stories and different things next week about people who are opposing the faith, people who are actually false teachers who are trying to shut down Peter. And then we're going to talk about, in chapter 3, Jesus' return. So, all right, pick it back up, verse 16, chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What is Peter talking about here? He is remembering the time that Peter and John and James went up on the mountain and they saw Jesus transfigured. He's, he's remembering that moment. And God spoke. And so he reminds them of that. He's like, I saw this. I heard this. Verse 18, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, you're sitting there going, okay, Dave, I get it. If I saw Jesus up on the mountain, and I saw him turn into this glorious god transfiguration thing, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. Right? I mean, I, if, I, if that happened to me, I would believe, but that hasn't happened to me. And so Peter goes on to say, verse 19, and we have something more sure. Yeah, there's something better than that. Let me tell you what it is. The prophetic word to which you... Uh, 
uh, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So three things this morning. Um, growing in God's Word. We have the witness of the apostles. We have the witness of the prophets. That's the Old Testament. And we have the witness of the New Testament. So we're going to look at each of those uh, together here. First of all, the witness of the apostle. There's these accusations that are coming. Um, you guys just made this up. You know, we, we, where did this all come from? And, um, and Peter starts with going, wait a second, let me remind you of some of the things that we saw. We, we saw this stuff. And so the first accusation is some people just made this up. Now there's another accusation that comes up in chapter 3. We'll look at it um, in a few weeks. But in chapter 3, um, it says, um, let me double check this. Yeah, verse 3. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own uh, sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are, are continuing as they were. They're saying, it's been a long time. Where's, the, where's this coming of Jesus? Where's this fulfillment happening? This has been a really long time, and we're sitting here, it's been even longer. That's, that, that was an accusation during Peter's day, and we're 2,000 years past that. Okay, so, man, this has been a long time. And then the third... And, and this is one of the main points of Peter, and it, it's a little heavy, and I, I just I need to wrestle with it. We're going to introduce it today, and we're going to wrestle with it over the next few weeks. The idea that when Jesus comes, when he returns, what's his attitude going to be? Now, I'm, I'm being a little flippant here. But the Bible talks about Jesus coming in, in a word that we don't like to use in our society, in our culture, judgment. And what people are saying, that's not Jesus. Jesus is too nice. And so he's not going to come in judgment. He's going to come in, in meekness and kindness and smallness. And unfortunately, we've turned Jesus into Oprah. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car, and that's not Jesus. Okay? Now, Jesus is very nice, he's very kind, and he's very loving, and he's very forgiving, and he's very patient. But he's also has an end to that patience. Now, there's one description I always love this. In, in Revelation, it talks about Jesus writing. He's all in white, and he is, he is coming in. He's got a sword. And one commentator one time says, you know, it takes a, it takes a pretty big dude to go into battle wearing white. I mean, he, he's pretty confident at that point in time that he's going to win, you know? But, so Jesus comes in this in a different sense, in his next coming. And we have made Jesus to be kind of a shiny, happy Jesus. And we're, that, that, we're, Peter's warning against that. Okay? So those are three things. And so how do we wrestle with some of those questions? First of all, I just want to remind you that the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, um, each one of them went to their death saying this is true. I saw this. I believe this. The one disciple that we 
history says was not martyred, wasn't killed, is the Apostle John. Um, He was either boiled or burned at the stake, and it didn't take. So they sent him off on an island. Okay, I mean, that's, that's, that's the good story. History tells us Peter was crucified, and he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus, so he's crucified upside down. And he didn't go, wait a minute, just kidding, just kidding. He went to his death saying this is true. And not only did he say it's true, but he said, I'm not even worthy to die in the same way that Jesus died. That's conviction. So we see the apostles' faith. Second, Peter's going to deal with this accusation of um, it's been a really long time. In chapter 3, I'll just give you a little little bit of a heads up here so that we're on the same page. In verse 8, in chapter 3, he says, But do not overlook the one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. You have a wrong perspective here. This is God. You you think He's... You think he is subject to your 24-hour day? He has lived forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's his time. It's not your time. And then Peter wants us to understand these warnings of Scripture. Now, I just... Part of me, I feel... Um, yes, I, I'm pastor of this church, and uh, and you know I'm very honest. My my salary comes from donations that people give to this church. But I, to me, I I work for somebody else. I'm just being honest with you. Some of you are like going, wait, what? Is... I have to give an account to the Lord, and I I can't I can't candy coat this. Okay, so these are some scriptures, some warnings from Scripture. Okay, it says this. Um, is it up there? One more. There we go. From Matthew, when the Son of Man comes, here's Jesus' return, in His glory, we see that word repeated in Peter, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There are people that are in, and people that are out. Okay, next verse. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just, listen, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you, those who are afflicted as well. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, Okay, next one. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral, uh, immoral and adulterous. Okay, from Hebrews. One more, Revelation. From John, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then from 2 Peter um, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 and following. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up, 
and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's a judgment coming. Now, here's the good news. People in the church over the years have made you believe that you have to be good enough to endure the judgment that is coming. And that is false. Because the story of the Bible is none of us are good enough. But God loved us so much that He sent Jesus to pay the price for our sins. Now, what we need to do is put our faith in Him and follow Him wholeheartedly. That doesn't mean that we keep doing the things that we've always done. It means because of our love for Him, we, we try to become more like Him. But we know that we're going to fall short. In fact, we talked about in this book how Peter was one of the people who fell short. So we recognize that judgment is coming, and what we do is we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. So he answers some of these accusations throughout the book. Now I said that this first section here is a witness to the, uh, of the apostles, and he's specifically talking here about the transfiguration. This was a unique part story in the gospel. Uh, there's 12 disciples. Jesus pulls out three, and he says, let's go up to a mountain. And when they're up there, they're up on this mountain, Jesus transfigures. He changes. His, his physical being changes and glows. And coming to the conversation are two of the Old Testament prophets. Well, Elijah, and we've got John there who's kind of in between, and Peter, it's like, whoa, this is kind of cool. And he doesn't know what to say, so he's like, let's make some tents here and we'll make like a little worship place where people can come up here and hang out and experience this. And God kind of interrupts. And he says, Would you listen to my son. He doesn't say shut up, Peter, but I think it's implied there. <laughs> listen to my son. Okay, and... and this is, this, is, this is it. This is, this is what I want you to see. This is my son, whom I'm well pleased. Now, there's a few things in there that we learn from this story that Peter is referencing. and look, It obviously had a huge impact. And Peter, he doesn't tell the whole story. He just alludes to it. He says, man, I, I remember this. And there's, there's three, at least three things we can be reminded of. Jesus' humanity is revealed. Now, this is all about showing that Jesus is God, and it's all about this amazing uh, transfiguration, but in order for there to be a transfiguration, Peter is recognizing, first of all, that he is man. <clears throat> and I talk with this my students all the time. Those of you who have grown up in the church, I think you have an understanding to some degree. I mean, none of us wants a pop quiz. None of us wants to have to explain it. But we go, I've been in the church, I've heard this. I understand that we believe that Jesus is fully God. Okay? Those of you who've been around for a while, like we, you've heard this before, right? This is not new information. Okay? Here's what we wrestle with. The Bible also teaches that Jesus was fully man. And here's why that's important. Because when life is hard, When things don't work out the way that you thought they were going to work out. When you undergo pain and suffering 
when somebody betrays you, when you're left without, we worship a God who fully experienced all of that. He can relate to that. In fact, the Bible says there's, there's nothing that he wasn't tempted with that you're not tempted with. That's pretty encouraging. Now, here's the problem. Christian movies have destroyed this theology. I'm sorry. I can't watch them. All right? First of all, Jesus is white with blonde hair, which, no. Okay? Second of all, he's got the sash thing, which is just weird. I had some friends that in college, Christian friends who like watched a Christian movie and they decided that the Jesus character never blinked so they just tried to keep their eyes open the whole time that Jesus was on the screen. Yeah, and burn their eyes out. I don't know. I, Jesus is just weird in all those movies and he just kind of walks around really stiff. Okay? And it's, just, it's not relatable. Jesus was fully human. Fully human. And, and Peter wants us to remind the fact that the, the reason that Jesus did these things is because he trusted in Jesus, he trusted in God, he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was familiar with God's Word. You have that. All right, second. There on your notes. Jesus shared, glory is revealed. In fact, it's called here in the text, Majestic glory, and in my Bible, it's capitalized. In other words, it's using it as a title. When we talk about majestic glory, okay, we're not talking about a great athlete. We're not talking about our favorite movie star. We can only be talking about one person here. From a biblical point of view, and it's talking about God. God is the only one that really has majestic glory. Okay? And then third, Jesus' relational glory is revealed. Listen to this again. And we, again, we, sometimes we read over the stuff and we don't sl slow down. This is my beloved son. That's a relationship. Beloved. This is, there's a loving relationship here. And he says this, with whom I am well pleased. You just hear that in a dad's voice, right? Right? Because we've said, said it the other way, right? I am not pleased with you right now. Okay? We've, we've said those things. God doesn't have to say that about Jesus, but we want, as kids, as, as growing up, we want to hear that. And I don't know how many young men over the years I've sat across the table from, and I'm one of them. And they say, you know what? It's a guy thing, so ladies, you're going to go, what? That's... And guys, you can just kind of look at me because I know some of you experience this. I don't ever remember one time my dad saying, I love you. That's weird. True of me growing up. In fact, I was in a group of Christian guys. We were living together. And this, some, I don't know how this became a topic. There's three Christian guys. Grew up in the church. All three of us, we all said the same thing. In the church. I, the first time that I remember my dad saying, I love you, um, these three guys, we had been talking about it, and they dared me to say it. I, it was a dare. 
Kid you not. Sounds something like this. Let me. First time I heard it repeated. I initiated. Now I say that because we live in a culture when we don't feel loved, we don't feel God is pleased, we don't feel accepted. So I just want to show you a little flow chart here. I don't have it on the notes. God, you're with me so far. Jesus, followers of Jesus. And in Christ, when God says, I am well pleased, he is looking to his son, to you, as a follower of Jesus and saying, I'm pleased. I love you. I'm, and, and I'm just, I'm broken. Some of you, you're, you guys, oh, it's getting a little too mushy up there. Yeah, I, I get it. Like for me, receiving love really hard. Being nice to other people, occasionally. Okay? All right. So, first of all, the witness of the apostles. Second, the witness of the prophets. And I need to go a little bit faster here. Um, you'll have to look up some of these verses maybe a little bit on your own later. But here's the, here's the deal. What he says, let's look at it again. Uh, verse 19. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word. Okay? What's he talking about there? Look, the church in Peter's day, they didn't have a Bible that looked like this. Okay? In fact, most of the people there did not have a Bible. They hopefully had scrolls of the Old Testament. And if it was a bigger church and more established, maybe even all of those scrolls. And the early churches we're finding in a lot of the ruins looked a lot like the old uh, Jewish tabernacles and that there was a closet, a very important closet, where they stored these scrolls. Now, also in this closet, if I can call it that, keep place, safe, probably a better word, okay? They also had some of these letters in the New Testament that were passed around. And they would, they would dig into these. So look, we've got this, here's the most amazing thing. This story that started in Genesis and went all the way through all those Hebrew writings has all been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And these new writings are like, let me show you how they've been fulfilled. And they all point to one person. And even Jesus said that in Luke, the end, last chapter of Luke. Jesus has died, he has risen again, and he is hiding himself, and he's walking along the road with some of his disciples. And he's kind of quizzing them a little bit. And uh, they don't seem to be getting what's going on, but they're sitting there having a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus begins teaching them. Sorry, I'm trying to turn to it just a second. Even the pastor gets lost sometimes. The end of Luke. After the resurrection, we're chapter 24, verses 13 and following. Jesus is talking with his disciples. And he says in verse 44, Then he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you. This, there's nothing new here. I already said all this stuff that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, we're reading this many thousands of years later. Let me tell you what Jesus just said. 
The Old Testament books were put together in a thing called the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is an acronym. They had Baptists back then too. And the TA stands for the law, okay? And you have the, the prophets and the writings. What did Jesus just say? He said, verse 44, these are the words that I spoke with you, that everything that was written about to me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms were part of the writings. He said, it all points to me. That whole thing. So everything that we need to know about Jesus is actually in the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament shines a light on Jesus. That's what Peter says. And we have have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. (coughs) It's pointing to Jesus. Third. The entire Old Testament has value. I just say that for some of you people that have been around here for a long time. I don't know. I grew up in the church and we did the Old Testament in Sunday school, but then we don't talk about it much. And you know that I I teach Old Testament. I love Old Testament. So we keep coming back to it. But he says there, right, like a lamp shining until the day dawns and the morning star rises. Like this this has value. It brings light. It, It points to Christ. All these things. Okay? Now, the fourth thing on your notes there is I want to talk about the process of interpretation. This is very non-sermonetic. Uh, it's more like classroom. But what I want to say is, where do we get these Bibles? Where did they come from? Okay? They did not just fall from the sky. Okay? We don't believe that. We did not get any gold tablets from God from the sky that we, in fact, that's a whole other religion. Okay? That's not, what, that's not what we have. So where did they come from? Uh, here's a little chart here. Let me just kind of walk you through it. Kind of hard to see. There was a divine author, God, the Holy Spirit, who Peter says, let me just read this, he describes this process. He says, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. <coughs> they didn't make this up. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man But men spoke from God. God to the man who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So there's a divine author, God, and then we have these these human authors. And that is the original text of Scripture. Now listen here for a little bit. We have these original texts of Scripture that were written in a certain time and a certain place, and we need to keep that in mind. Okay? They were written in a different culture. They were written in different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Okay? They were written in different cultures, and we need to keep all that in mind. Now, in our doctrinal statement at this church, it says that we believe the Bible is without error. Anybody ever read that before? Okay. It says something else. The Bible is without error in the original manuscripts. Okay? We don't have those. Hillsborough First Baptist Church doesn't have them. The church does not have them. After a while, the things that they were written on disintegrate. Okay? What we have now, we move from inspiration to transmission. We have copies of the original text. And with those copies, we put together what we call a critical text. We look at all these different copies and we say, oh, there's some differences here, there's some differences here, but we put this all together and we have this is what we believe that the original writer said. Now, those critical texts are still in different languages. 
So we have a translation. That's either done by a person, usually good Bibles, it's done by a committee. Okay? And they put those into the English translations, and then you have this. Now, why do I say this? <coughs> We've done our kids a disservice. Our kids grew up in a church, and they were told over and over again, your Bible is without error. And then we send them off to college, and they get their lunch handed to them by a college professor who hates Jesus. And he shows them all this stuff, and they go, I didn't know any of that. And then they call you, and you say, the Bible's without error. Believe it, you're going to hell. Sorry. Your kids will be required to read at PCC or other secular colleges very often this, Bible, this book right here. It's called Misquoting Jesus, the Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. Now let me just read that title again. Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. Here's some interesting things about this book. Uh, the man that wrote this book uh, was a believer, uh, claimed to be a believer, follower of, of Christ, had a conversion experience, worked with one of the greatest critical text uh, theologians of our time, was a disciple of his, walked away from the faith, and later wrote this book. Um, the title is totally mis misleading. He doesn't talk at all about the story of the people who changed the Bible. It's not in the book. It's just in the title. He gives 36 examples of textual issues in this book. Big book, 36 examples. 22 of them have nothing to do with what Jesus said. Misquoting Jesus. 36 examples, 22 have nothing to do with what Jesus said. So we're down to 14. Four of them, he talks about, are omissions. Things that one book said he said, another book said he didn't, so we're not even talking about misquoting him. We're down to 10 issues. One author said, of the 10 that were left, only one was substantial. And that one, it was what Jesus said, is quoted as saying in Luke, around the communion table, Peter quotes differently, and the author never deals with Peter's quotation. I'm going to go a little bit further. This guy is writing to tell your kids that they cannot believe the Bible. I promise you, your, their professor will not have them read the appendix. Because in the appendix is an interview that this author did. And he's asked this question. Bruce Metzger, that's the Christian critical um, a teacher and, and worker that this man used to work under. Your mentor, which by the way, he has the nerve to dedicate this book to Bruce Metzger. <laughs> Whew, yeah, I don't think Bruce is, has that on his... Uh, anyway, your mentor in textual criticism to whom this book is dedicated has said that there is nothing in these variants of Scripture that challenges any essential Christian belief, like the resurrection or uh, the, the Trinity. Why do you believe these core tenets of Christian orthodoxy to be in jeopardy? He answers, Bruce Metzger is one of the greatest scholars of modern times. 
and I dedicate this book to him because he was both my inspiration for going into textual criticism and the person who trained me in the field. I have nothing but respect and admiration for him. And even though we may disagree on important religious questions, he is firmly committed, he is a firmly committed Christian and I am not. We are in, listen, we are in complete agreement on a number of very important important historical and textual questions. If he and I were put in the room and asked to hammer out a consensus statement on what we think the original text of the New Testament probably looked like, there would be very few points of disagreement. He goes on to say, the position I argue for in this book does not actually stand at odds with Professor Metzger's position. That the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the textual criticism. He writes this whole book and then says, no, it doesn't really affect anything. Now, if you think your church was hiding things from you, you can turn to the end of the book of Mark and you can see in your Bible, in parentheses, some manuscripts do not have these verses. And all through your text, it says some manuscripts have this, some manuscripts have that. We have not hidden the fact that there's textual variance. What we are saying, and one of the worst critics of Scripture agrees with, is that it doesn't affect the story. It doesn't affect who Jesus is, that he died and rose again, and that he is offering you salvation. It doesn't impact it. So I just want you to know where this thing came from. Finally, there's a process of interpretation. Now, what does this mean? We, we don't come to Scripture, we don't read it, and we don't, we don't say, what does this mean to me? One time I was having lunch up here. There was something going on at the church, and I just kind of went up to a restaurant up here all by myself. And I'm sitting there, and, uh, and it was a Mexican restaurant, and very few people spoke English in there, which meant the food was great. And I was sitting there, and, and I can, I'm eavesdropping, bad habit, I know, and they're talking about a problem, some sort of problem. And I'm not kidding, this, this happened. They pulled out a Bible. I'm like, this is awesome. This never happens. And they did one of these. And I'm sitting over there going, no! no that's not how we do You know, you have a better shot than not, but still, not the greatest method. And so many times we come to the Bible, it's like, I have a problem, how do I fix it? Uh, you know, my marriage is in trouble, my finances are in trouble, my kids are in trouble, you know, whatever it is. And we just go, what does what the Bible say? Look, this book was written a long time ago, and it wasn't written about you. It was written about Jesus. And it's trying to tell you that there is a whole different way. It's not just to fix it, it's like a whole life change. It's a whole different road. And so we don't open this up in interpretation and say, what does it mean to me? We say, what did it mean to them? What was Peter trying to tell this? And, and then how do we take these principles and apply it to our life? Finally, the witness of the New Testament. So we've dealt real heavily with the Old Testament. What about these New Testament books? It's kind of amazing, these letters from the apostles, from Paul and from Peter, from John. There's others that were working for the apostles, or Luke was doing his historic, uh, history thing. and So we have all these letters that are going out. Like, how do we know that those are from God? 
Look at the end of chapter 3 here. Um, we'll get to this uh, a little bit later, but um, in his final words here, uh, in the last few verses, it says um, in verse 15, um, let me start in verse, verse 4. Therefore, beloved, since you are, you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish or at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation just our beloved brother Paul. You, know, you, you guys know Paul. You've heard about him. Also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Okay? You've got Paul's letters out there. As he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, these are some things in them that are hard to understand. I love this. Peter's like, you know what? Paul's a little difficult to understand. <laughs> guy's a little heady, right? You guys with me here? What's, what's his deal? But listen, he goes on to say, yeah, he's hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do what? With the rest of Scriptures. What did Peter just said? Paul's writings are what? Scripture. This is amazing. So Peter calls Paul's writing Scripture. Paul in 1 Timothy calls Luke's writing Scripture. That covers... Peter covers a big portion of the New Testament. Or Paul covers a big portion of the New Testament. Luke and Acts, word count-wise, is a huge portion of the New Testament. Now, I want to turn to one final verse, and I'll end with this. <clears throat> 2 Timothy. What do we do with this book? Just one verse, and I'm going to chart it out for you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul here says, all Scripture. All Scripture. These Old Testament things, this new stuff that's being written, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Okay? Divine author to a human writer. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. A bunch of words there. Uh, in our, some of you have been around for a while. You've heard this in the relational elder training. They ask the question, what, about, what if those word orders were on purpose? What if he wasn't just throwing that stuff out there? So it looks like this on your chart, on your notes. Teaching. What does it say? What, what is true? Okay, when you, when you look at Scripture, you say, what is true? God loves me. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Um, you know, I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do that. What is true? What, what is it saying? Okay? Now, the second word there is in, in uh, my Bible says reproof or rebuke, depending on your translation, okay, this is things that are not true. A reproof is, wait, 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 okay, I, there's, I can't remember what it was from, it was a sitcom or something, and uh, um, the mom says to the, to the son, did you, wa he comes out of the bathroom, did you wash your hands? He says, yes, <laughs> and he's like, she reaches out, let me, let me touch him, and he goes, well played, mom, well played. Right? Okay? Look, that's a correction. You didn't wash your hands. It's a, you're supposed to do this. You have, that's a, what, is, what is not true in my life? When we read Scripture and we talk about being kind and being patient and being giving and being forgiving and loving our enemies and giving to the poor and being generous, and you read those things, you go, oh, that's really good Bible stuff. But do you read it and go, wait a minute, that's not true of me? That should be a correction. It should be a heart check. Now, the next word then, okay, reproof is correction on your notes, okay? 
so this is not true of me, so what is it? What, what should I not be doing, or what, what should I be doing differently? What, what corrections need to be made? And I, I would say many Christians don't make this jump. We read the Bible and we see things, but we go, wait a second. <coughs> Let me just take one. The Bible's very clear that we should be generous. That is culturally opposed to really how we want to live. Many times. And we say, yeah, I, want, I would like to be generous. It sounds good. In writing, I like it. Practically, I can't afford it. I would if I could. Even though statistics say the more money you have, the less you give. But still, we, we never actually make the correction where we say, I'm going to be, you know what, I'm going to try to be a little bit generous this week. Okay, That's the correction. And then finally, training in righteousness. So what do we do moving forward to make this thing stick? How do we move forward and do things differently? That's how we use God's Word in our life. Scripture is authoritative, and it points to Christ. Scripture is authoritative, and, you know, we, we have a statement, um, I, I should have read it before, but we believe the Bible is, is uh, our standard for everything in life and something like that, and blah, blah, blah. It's a good statement. I don't disagree with it, but let me just say this. First, the Bible points to Jesus. If you miss that part, you're going to be really confused. If you just say it just, it just points to I need to be better, I need to work harder, I need to not do this and do this and not, you miss the whole point. First of all, Scripture points to Jesus. Then it points to holiness. Through Jesus. Application. We go back to this statement that he makes that's just, it rattles our bones. It says, Make your calling sure. Make sure that you're in the faith. And so here's what we need to do as a church, individually. Um, we need to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. My things are out of order there, sorry. We need to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. Look, I've said this before as a youth pastor, all these kids in my youth group had the WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I used to just love to ask them, how many of you read the Gospels this week? How do you know what Jesus would do if you don't actually learn about him? Jesus is he's a cool guy, don't get me wrong. But unless you learn about him, you're not going to know what to do. So we need to grow in our knowledge. And second, we need to grow in our love for Jesus. And I, I know that sometimes, you know, um, you know, put on the spot, you know, Dave, you're going to come away and you're going to say, Dave said we need to read our Bibles more, which I don't think I actually said that, but that's what you're going to take away. Let me reword that for you. So when you repeat it back to me. What Pastor Dave is saying to you this morning, listen, I need to grow in my love for Jesus. I need to grow in my love for Jesus. And then finally, you already have it on your notes because I had them out of order. We need to pursue him. And I just, I want to, if I love somebody, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to, I want to get and spend as much time with them as possible. I'm going to pursue that. And I, I just I want you guys to understand what, what I'm saying. And we've said this many times, but if you go back to the school cafeteria, all right? 
picture the plates. They've got all the little things that keep your food separate, for those of you who have issues. Okay? They always have the meat item in the big section. It's questionable. Okay? Some sort of vegetable, unnamed. Okay? And hopefully a piece of Texas toast in the middle one, right? Or not... And, and, the, and the sheet cake, the chocolate sheet cake brownie, you're hoping for that? And what Christians are doing is they're taking their plate and just, you know, give me a little bit of Jesus. That's not going to work. Everything you do needs to be through the lens of who Jesus is. His love for you will absolutely change your life. But if you're just trying to live by a bunch of rules that are written in a book that was written to three, four thousand years ago, you're going to have a hard time. And so Peter's saying, you have everything you need in the person and work of Jesus Christ to grow in your love for Jesus and have your life absolutely changed. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. And uh, what a challenging passage, just even this morning, just wrestling with what it says. And I, I pray that it's encouraging. I pray that we're challenged about what, what, what the Bible is and what it means for our life and how we, how we incorporate it into our life. And I, I pray as a church that we would fall more in love with Jesus. I pray that we would uh, live more uh, according to his kingdom rules and ideas and what it's supposed to look like so that we might have a radical impact on our society and our culture and the people around us. Um, not for our glory, but for your glory. More people that love you and are walking with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.